Last week, I started a new series uh, in our church, a new preaching series called Desecularizing Christianity. And we talked a little bit about human nature. And today we're going to talk about another really important topic, and that is the topic of love. So what we know is that secularism is what we would call the dominant worldview in the West. Now, Canada is part of the West, so it's the dominant worldview in Canada and in many like-minded cultures. And secularism essentially has dismissed God and said that human beings, through their senses, through their experiences, through their experiments, can arrive at that which is true. Secularism is the dominant worldview in our country. And the challenge in many of our churches is that the vast majority of people who are Christians today have been educated in secular systems or inundated with a secular worldview. And so oftentimes, even in the life of uh, the church, we see people's actions, priorities, responses to things reflecting more the secular worldview than a biblical worldview. And so we're always trying to bring ourselves back to the Word of God to make the necessary corrections to our thinking. We don't want our thinking to be stinking. We want our thinking to be accurate and precise and informed by what God, our Creator, has delivered to us. So let's talk about a view of love from a secular perspective and a view of love from a sacred or biblical perspective. If you compare a secular view of love to a sacred view of love, there is a drastic difference between the two. In secular love, love is considered a phase, whereas in sacred love, it's considered permanent. In secular love, it's a feeling. In sacred love, it is an action and an attitude that we adopt toward one another. In secular love, it's accidental. This is why we talk about falling into love as if it was a mistake. Whereas a sacred view of love says, no, love is deliberate. I choose to love you as Christ has loved the church. In secularism, love feels good. From a sacred biblical worldview, it feels right. It may not always feel good, but it feels right. It's the right thing to do. Secularistic love is narcissistic. It's me-oriented. Sacred love is altruistic. It's for the good of the other. A secular view of love is conditional, whereas a sacred view of love is unconditional. You can see there's a a dramatic difference between secular love and sacred love. If you pictured an arrow, secular love basically points the arrow back at oneself. So the notion is, well, I love in order to get. I'm married in order to receive. I choose to love my employer in order to receive. I choose to act a certain way toward you in order to receive. It makes me feel good. It builds me up. It it works for me. It benefits me financially. Whereas a sacred view of love, the arrow points outward. We love one another because we want to be a blessing to one another. So as you think about this, I want you to be assessing your life as we enter into 1 Corinthians chapter 13, a famous love chapter, so helpful, so relevant 
I want you to be thinking about and assessing your own life and asking yourself, is my view of love and my practice of love more of a secular approach or is it a sacred approach to love? You could assess yourself if you're not married, for instance, in your dating relationships. And one of the things we see even among young people or middle-aged people or older people who aren't married and who are dating is they sort of see the dating relationship as putting the other person in a place where they're being tested. So I'm going to date you for a period of time, and you've got to kind of prove yourself to me. This is the mindset we have, and it, it, it often establishes marriages that are, from the onset, very self-oriented, self-centered. So we date to experiment. I want to see if this girl or this guy measures up to my standards. I want to see if they make me feel good. I want to see if they make me laugh. I want to see if they can meet my needs. Is it any wonder, by the way, why so many people remain single? They remain single. This isn't true of everybody, of course, but many remain single because they're looking for Mr. or Mrs. Perfect. And the reality is none of us are. But if the mindset is, well, I'm only going to continue the relationship if you continue to provide for me, make me laugh, make me enjoy every moment, remain absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. Well, everybody at some point fails in one or all of those categories. And so the relationships fall apart. Maybe a disgusting example of this would be these ridiculous bachelor and bachelorette shows where we have these people that are quite a bit older usually, and they're kind of experimenting with each other and making out with each other, and it's all ridiculous. It's all selfish. It's all narcissistic. It's all surfacey. But this mindset that the world so embraces often creeps into the church. And Christians begin to don this perspective when it comes to dating. Well, you're, you're kind of in a, a little bit of a testing phase right now. You've got to prove yourself to me. Instead of seeking to love that person as best as you can and permitting them to love you back. So we, we have a secular view of love in dating relationships. It leaks through into marital relationships. In society, we're so selfish. You hear people running around. It's like the world is privileged to have me here. You know, it's my human right for you to provide for all my needs. You know, it's, it's my human right for you to pay my way through life, for you to make sure I never get bullied, never get picked on, never have a bad day, never struggle, never am let down. It's your responsibility to make me feel good. Instead of loving one's country and appreciating the value and virtues of freedom and patriotism. We have so many people that are absolutely self-centered when it comes to their understanding of their place in the world. Even in the church, church hoppers and pew shoppers. It's one of the most popular games today where people jump from church to church, sometimes attending six, seven, eight, nine, ten churches in their lives. And why did they leave? Well, the problem's always with the church, of course. They love their church when their church makes them feel special, but as soon as they get overlooked or forgotten or someone says something offensive, they're gone. 
in marriage. Well, I'll love you until you disappoint me. At work, I love my job. It's their privilege to have me working for them. This is the mindset that many people have when it comes to their employment. And I know that employees benefit employers and vice versa, but this whole notion of a lack of gratitude for employment is rampant in Western culture. All of these examples point to the fact that in life, so many of us, when it comes to our relationships, the arrow's pointing back at us. We expect to be loved. We expect to feel good. We expect to be affirmed. We expect to be encouraged. We expect to be well-treated. Well, the passage we're going to look at today helps us to see that we need to learn to point the arrow outward. To point the arrow outward. Instead of looking for people to bless us, God is calling us to be a blessing to other people. This is how love is expressed from a Christian perspective. So join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I'm going to start with verse 1. And we're going to ask this question. What place does love take in Christian living? And there's a couple points here that are worth discussing. Here's the first one in verse 1. Might surprise us a little bit, but this is what the Bible teaches us. Love actually outranks words. Love outranks words. The text says, if I speak in the tongue of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, obviously, the first word in this verse is a hypothetical if, because nobody speaks in the tongues of all nations. Nobody can speak in the tongue of angels. We don't even know what tongue angels speak in. I mean, you might speak Klingon, but nobody can speak in the tongues of an angel. So this is a hypothetical if. It's like the ancient equivalent of saying, well, even if I can leap over tall buildings in a single bound, but have not love, I'm just a noisy racket of a man. I mean, it'd be kind of cool if we could do these things. It'd be neat if we could speak in the tongue of men, all the languages of the world, if we could speak in the tongue of angels. It'd be a cool thing to be able to do. But what the passage is telling us is that even if we could, even if we could excel in the gift of languages, the gift of speech, our oratory abilities, even if we could do all that, but we fail to love others, we are nothing more than a cacophony of sound. Now think about the message that we receive from culture from the time we're very young. Think about superheroes, for example. Who's your favorite superhero? Batman, Spider-Man, Wonder Woman, Whoever your favorite superhero is, think about this. Why are they considered a superhero? Because of something they can do that's extraordinary. Something they can accomplish, some power they have that the ordinary person doesn't have. They're a hero because of what they do. And this notion of being heroic because of your accomplishments It's communicated to us from our earliest years onward. And so many people live life and they think, you know, if if, if I want to be a hero, I need to do amazing things. I need to have 
many accomplishments, many accreditations to my name. We define heroes by their actions, by their activities, by their accomplishments. And this affects us. Think about it. When we went to school, we were taught mathematics because we were told it's important to know mathematics. And we were taught science in order to excel in the sciences. And we were taught history so that we might have a view of the world. We're taught all these subjects so that we can go out and do something with them, accomplish something, create something, build something, meet some need. How many of you ever took a course in elementary school, in secondary school, in undergraduate school, in graduate school, in how to love other people? We're not taught that. It's like a footnote to our lives. That's not important. What's important is what you can accomplish, we're told. But what this passage is reminding us and will continue to remind us of is you could be the greatest orator. You could accomplish the greatest feats in history. You could leap over buildings in a single bound. Even if you could do that. If you don't love people, you fail. On the other hand, if you do love people, you will outrank the most eloquent speakers in human history in the eyes of God. And all of you are capable of that if you are filled with the Holy Spirit of God and choose to be obedient to his written word. Love outranks words. That's verse 1. Verse 2 and 3, love outranks insight. And check this out. Love even outranks martyrdom. And if I have prophetic powers, the apostle writes, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, well, that'd be kind of cool. You know, as a preacher, I want to be insightful and understanding and wise when it comes to God's word. Who of us would not want to have insight, prophetic powers to understand all mysteries, to have all knowledge? How about this? Don't you love people of faith? I love being around people of great faith. But the Bible says, and even if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am, what's the next word? Nothing. If I give away all that I have, who doesn't like a charitable, generous person? If I deliver up my body to be burned, that's martyrdom. But have not love? I gain nothing. Now, I got to admit, as many times as I've read this passage, it's, it's kind of shocking to really understand the value of love, even in Christian living compared to all other things. In our churches, especially in Bible teaching churches like ours, we place a very high premium on preaching and teaching and understanding the word of God because God has spoken truth to us, and it is intended to transform us. And we should place a very high premium on that. This is why in our church we often say we believe in unapologetic preaching. Creatures don't apologize to creatures for what the Creator has said. So we're a Bible-oriented people. We also place very high premium on insight, the ability to understand and fathom 
the deep truths of God. We want to be a wise and discerning and insightful people. And these are great things, but what this passage reminds us of is that even if we have these things but have not love, we're not heroes, we're zeros in the eyes of God. We fail. It also speaks of faith. We love being around people of faith. We want to be people of faith. We talk about the great heroes of the faith from the time of the Bible onward. Faith, faith, faith is part of our Christian vocabulary. But this passage tells us that even if we have faith, the kind of faith that seems to have God's ear, that enables us to move mountains, even if we have that kind of faith, but we don't have love, again, we're not heroes, we're zeros. That's the grade we get. And then just kind of amping it up another notch, I got to say, I'm fascinated with the concept of martyrdom. I don't really want to be a martyr. But if you've ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs, or you kind of keep in touch with various ministries like Voices of the Martyrs, there are people being persecuted and dying for their faith, even in our world today. And it begs the question, man, if I was put up against the wall and a gun was put to my head and someone was like, deny Jesus, Aaron, or I'm going to pull the trigger, would I say, I deny him, or would I say, pull the trigger? Let's say I said, pull the trigger. I'm going to take a stand for Christ. The flag's been firmly planted. I'm not going to buckle. I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to give up. You'd be like, man, Aaron is a man of great faith. But in the eyes of God, it's possible to give up your very life for the cause of Christ. But if God looks at you and says, okay, so you were burned at the stake. You were shot through the head. You were stabbed in the heart for my name, but you didn't love people. You still fail. We know that there's people from many false religions that have given their lives for the lies they believe in. So it's not enough just to give up your life, have great faith, have great insight, be a man or woman of the word of God. It's not enough. We must be a people who are increasingly marked by love. Love outranks our words, and love outranks insight and even martyrdom. So by way of application, think about this. And I've got to think about this myself as well. What areas of Christian living do you work hardest at? Do you work hardest at being a person that understands God's word, being a person of insight, being a person of faith, being a person of self-sacrifice? These are great things. We should pursue these things. They are virtuous. They are spoken of positively all through the Bible. But apparently, they are not the thing we should work the very hardest at. What we should be working the very hardest at is love. For other people, because all of these things are supposed to take us there. Love for God and love for others. Not this garbage love for self-talk that is so prevalent in the secular mindset and that has crept into the church. And again, affects dating relationships and your place in society and your place at work and your place in marriage. Not that, but love for God and love for our 
fellow man. This is fundamental. Then you could ask yourself this question just to kind of help assess. What kind of Christian do I admire the most? Oh, that person with great insight, that person with great oratory skills, that person that is so sacrificial, that person that just seems to have faith that moves mountains, even in the midst of great trial and tribulation. Okay, that's great. But the person you should admire the most is the person who is marked by the extravagant love of the Lord Jesus Christ. I thought to myself, should I spend time even defining love? Well, the Bible does define love for us here and gives, gives us some practice. But of course, we could talk about this for several hours. But I would just encourage you and say, if you really want to understand what love looks like, be a lifelong student of Jesus Christ. Look at his example, look at his words, look at his deeds, and you'll understand increasingly what it truly looks like to love other people. Jesus was amazing at this and provides us with an impeccable example. But let's talk about some how-tos because the Bible takes us in that direction. How to excel in love. Like, What are some of the practicalities associated with being a loving person? The first one mentioned in the text is patience. If you want to excel in the area of love, you need to lean towards patience. And it doesn't come naturally for most of us, but this is the high calling of Christ. The first part of verse 4 says, love is patient and kind. It's patient and kind. Patience necessarily requires waiting Waiting for what? Waiting for an apology? Waiting for the person to change? Waiting for Jesus to come back? Waiting for transformation to take place in your marriage? Waiting. So often we want change quick, don't we? I'm not sticking with this relationship. I'm not sticking with this church. I'm not... I'm not sticking with this employer. I'm not keeping this employee around unless there's immediate and conscientious change. But that's not necessarily loving. The Bible calls us to be patient in our relationships. So to be patient, again, requires waiting, and waiting requires within the person we're trying to love either something that's incomplete or something that's immature, or something that's inadequate. We wait for the inadequacies to become adequacies. For something that's incomplete to become complete. For someone that's immature to become mature. In love, we must learn the art of waiting patiently. And then secondly, the Bible is calling us to demonstrate kindness, which is like a a sister virtue to patience. Kindness, we could say, is, is influence without meanness. We're all seeking to influence people. And in relationships, you're going to be influenced and you're going to influence other people. Meanness really comes to the forefront when we want immediate change. We want to influence that person's words or ideas or presence. We get mean with people. But Kindness requires that we 
choose to influence without meanness. We posture ourselves in a gracious way. It doesn't mean we just smile and agree necessarily. But we posture ourselves in a position of grace and humility and long-suffering love in order to see that person or that relationship progress. How are you doing in the area of patience and kindness towards others? Secondly, we're taught that if we're going to be adequate in the area of love, we can't be prickly people. Don't be a prickly person. What do I mean by that? The second part of verse 4 and the first part of verse 5 read, Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. By way of application, we could think for a moment, it would be helpful if we think for a moment, about whether or not our response to relational challenges is marked by any of the things that we find in this list. Common sins in the church that may reveal more of a secular mindset when it comes to love as opposed to a sacred mindset when it comes to love would include self-interest. That's essentially what the passage is teaching when it talks about envying. That's self-interest. Pride, that's what boasting means. Being insistent, being like unrelenting in our expectations. Being rude in our approach. Getting frustrated, that's what the word irritable means. Holding grudges, that's what the word resentful means. Again, sometimes our greatest strength is our greatest weakness. And if you're a person of truth, you believe in right and wrong, you're an idealist, you have high expectations for your church, for your marriage, for your children, for your relationships, for your dating relationships, this can work for you or against you. It can work for you because it can help to catapult your relationships towards Christ-likeness and it can be marked by truth and clarity and urgency. You can be on mission with Jesus. But it can also work against you if you excuse your approach and say, well, I, I'm a truth guy, I'm a truth person, and so there's nothing wrong with me you know, insisting that this is the way things have to be. I, I get kind of rude with people. I'm, I'm arrogant in my approach, but it's, it's necessary in order to bring about the change in this incompetent person's life. I lay awake at night getting frustrated that people aren't as smart as me or as successful as me or skilled as I am. Think about it. So many of us let these mindsets creep into our relationships. And they're sinful. And if any of these words are characteristic of you, you need to repent of them. Think about your relationship with society as a whole with your extended family members, with your spouse if you're married, with your 
professors, your teachers, your fellow students, your brothers and sisters, your children. Are any of these words present? Envy, boasting, arrogance, rudeness, insistence, irritability, resentfulness. If they are, we just need to come to a place in our lives where we're like, you know what? Yeah, these are sins. I need to deal with these issues. We see this mindset creeping into the church that somehow these things are acceptable or excusable. Closer to home, even within evangelical churches, corporately, we can be guilty of these sins. How might arrogance express itself in the corporate church? How about always comparing ourselves to other churches? Ha, we're better than them. They don't seem to have their act together. How might rudeness demonstrate itself? Truth without grace? Facts without mercy? Expectations without charity? How about insistence? Well, we're going to, many times in our lives have to fight for truth. But sometimes I think we fall into this way of thinking, well, if I just yell a little louder, if I just tweet a little more consistently, if I just insist that the changes happen, they'll happen. Actually, you're kind of falling into the danger of acting as though you're God. But immediately relevant to the text, you might also be guilty of the sin of insistency. I never thought about that as a sin. Well, it can be. When you insist on getting your way, even if your way is the right way. How about irritability? Ah, stupid people drive me nuts. I don't have time for stupid people. We hear Christians talking this way. And it's tempting It's tempting. I I get it. I live in the same world that you do. But we need to bring these things toward the Lord and ask that God would remove these sinful attitudes from our lives because they are not reflective of the love of Jesus Christ. How about resentfulness? We can expect perfection. We can expect perfection. Again, one of the things we all need to be aware of is our greatest strengths can so easily become our greatest Weaknesses, and I can speak from experience, give you multiple examples of this, where my greatest strengths have become some of my greatest weaknesses. And those that know me well know this about me, and you know it about yourself as well. We have high expectations. We have high ideals. We are people of truth. We are people, we don't want to compromise. We want to stand for that which is right and righteous. But in life, guess what? Ministry is messy. Relationships are messy. People go up and they go down. And then they go up again and then they go down and they may go down a little further. And oftentimes we become resentful because we don't see the kind of perfection in our churches, the kind of commitment from our spouses, the kind of dedication from our children, the kind of perfection from our pastors that we think we are owed or should expect. And in their failings, which are inevitable, we become resentful. 
and we end the relationship. All of these things are not characteristic of Jesus Christ. They're reflective of a worldly view of relationships. And in contrast, God is calling us here to assess ourselves, to pray for forgiveness if we are guilty of any of these things, and to chart a new course, to walk in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ. We talk in our church about what a disciple is. A disciple worships Christ. A disciple works for Christ. And a disciple walks with Christ. This is category three. What does it mean to walk with Christ? It's to follow his example. And Jesus was incredibly loving and gracious toward people. Think about kind of like the, the whole risk and reward notion in life. Let's say you, you want to eat a piece of fruit that tastes really good, but it has a, a prickly covering on it, a, a prickly skin. Like, well, it tastes good, but I don't think I'm going to bother getting to the fruit because in order to get to the fruit, I got to like cut up my hands and it's not worth it. It's not worth it. In, in the same way, you might be a person that has the potential to be sweet fruit to other people. You know the truth. The truth has set you free. You are a ambassador of the gospel. You're a clear thinker. You could be a huge blessing to people. But people run from you because you're like prickly fruit. It's, it's not worth getting close to you. Because it's, it's going to hurt too much. But what if we had the option of being a smooth-skinned fruit that's easy to access, but at the same time provides a blessing to those that are around us? That should be our goal to be people of substance, to be people who can be a blessing, to be people who can enrich other people's lives. But people shouldn't have to push through a prickly exterior to get there. And there's so many people, sadly, that I know that are wonderful Christian people, but they have not learned this lesson. And so while their influence should be like this, their influence is like this. Because they haven't learned the art of working with people. They're always working at people, in confrontation with people. And they get increasingly frustrated because they can't figure out, why can't I get ahead? Why can't I get my message out? Because you are not loving. You are not loving. Your life is marked by envy and boasting and arrogance and rudeness and insistence and irritability and resentfulness. And you have permitted those things in your life because you see them as the necessary results of conviction. But they're not conviction. They're carnality. We need to be very careful to weed these things out of our lives. No one will listen to your words if every time you're around them, they just, you just kind of cut them up and spit them out. So what should our response be? We should anticipate the best in people. Verses 6 and 7. If you're going to last long as a preacher, if you're going to last long as a minister of the gospel, if you're going to last long as a small group leader, in any area of ministry and service for Christ, you need to understand, yes, some people will never change. 
but you should always approach the situation as if they will. You should anticipate, maybe not expect. Expectation is kind of a a word of presumption. It's like, well, it's going to happen. Well, it may or may not. But anticipation provides that balance. We should anticipate the best in people. So with regard to love, the Bible very clearly says it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears some things. No, it doesn't say that. It says love bears all things, loves, love hopes all things, love endures all things. This is love. This is the kind of love that Christ is calling us to. It's, it's a love that anticipates better days ahead. Now, let's just kind of be honest about ourselves for a little bit. How many of you have ever prayed the imprecatory psalms? The imprecatory psalms are those psalms in the Bible that basically pray for the downfall of our enemies. Lord, take them out, take them down, crush them, vindicate me. But if you look at those psalms, the ultimate goal of the psalmist is actually the glory of God, the honor of God. And so there is a place for praying that God's enemies would receive their just deserts, would fail, would be, would be brought down. But have you ever fallen into the trap of praying imprecatory prayers towards other people? It's like, I hope that guy gets, his, gets what's coming him, him. I hope that person fails. And we, we do it like that. It's like, eh, eh. there's an attitude there of like hatred. We despise the person. Instead of for hoping, hoping for all things, we're just waiting for that moment when we can rejoice at the downfall of our opponent. In contrast to that, while we should mourn wrongdoing, and while we should want evil to fail and fail big time, really the end goal is to celebrate God's glory and God's redemption and all of that. And God, by the way, gets great glory and honor for himself when his enemies repent and turn from their sins toward him. Think of one of the most famous and appreciated men in all of the Bible is the apostle Paul, previously known as Saul. He was a terrible person prior to his conversion. A terrible person. But what makes Saul so appreciated, Paul so appreciated, is that he's no longer the guy that he once was. Now imagine if the early Christians were just like, Lord, our prayer together, we just want to agree with you, Lord, like kill this guy quick. And imagine if God had answered that prayer. Of course, God would have used someone else to accomplish his purposes, but just from a human lesson, a human perspective, that would be a huge loss to the kingdom of God. But one of the beautiful things about Paul's life is that he went from a terrible man to a tremendous man. So even when we look at our opponents, those that we despise, those that we dislike, those that we kind of want want to sort of go away, why not pray in anticipation? Why not interact with them in anticipation that God would stir their hearts, that God would get a hold of them, that God would bring bring about dramatic change in their lives? So much of the world is marked by bravado and and bragging and self-inflation. When we were kids, we used to watch 
WWF wrestling. And of course, it's showy and kind of fake and fictitious and all that. But the, the whole theme, like all the wrestlers, it was all about bravado and bragging. You'd have like Randy, the macho man savage. And he'd come on and he'd talk smack about Hulk Hogan. And it was hilarious. It's like, Hulk Hogan, you need to understand that when you meet Randy, the macho man savage in the ring, you're going to get crushed. It's all the bragging and bravado and pride. And there was, there was an entertainment factor to that. But don't, don't learn your relational tactics from WWF or whatever the modern equivalent happens to be. I haven't followed it for years. How do we deal then with foolish people, with people that test us, with people that are hard to love? We bear up, the Bible teaches us. We believe the best. We hope for the best. We endure in the relationship. It's hard to do this. It's very hard. In fact, in all honesty, I don't even like this teaching on a certain carnal level. And I'm sure you're, you're experiencing that as well. It's like, oh, I wish that wasn't in the Bible. But it's there. And it's true. And this is the ultimate goal that God puts out for his people. The secularist wants to win, and we want to win in relationships, in arguments. But the secularist will win at all costs. If they have to win by being mean, by being unkind, impatient, ending the relationship, they'll take that path. Christians want to win too, but Christians want to win and then look back and say, and we were proud of the way that we won because we continued to exercise patience and kindness. We chose endurance over irritability. We chose forgiveness over resentment. Now here's the final truth, which is, Absolutely fascinating to think about. It's found in verse 8. When you think about what heaven's going to be like, you ever thought about that? All this ministry that we're doing, what's some of the ministries that, that our church is engaged in? Well, we have children's ministries. And there's all sorts of different branches of that. We have youth ministries. We have university and college age ministries. We have men's ministry, women's ministry, small group ministry. We have ministry to people in crisis pregnancies. We have ministry to newcomers to Canada. We have church planning ministries in Europe. We have child survival projects down in South America. And on and on and on and on. There's all kinds of things that a church like ours is doing. You're like, I wonder if heaven's going to be like that. Like, Is there going to be youth group on Friday night in heaven? Women's Bible study on Wednesday morning? You know, church every Sunday? Small groups on Thursday night? Like, what's heaven going to be like? What, what's the eternal ministry that we're going to be engaged in in heaven? What's it going to look like to be in heaven? And all these virtues that, that God has for us, these, these, these high callings like preaching and evangelism and feeding the poor and 
rescuing the, the widow and the orphan. I wonder what heaven's going to be like when it comes to ministry. What's interesting is the Bible basically teaches us, you know what our eternal ministry is? Love. Love is our eternal ministry and it's our eternal ethic. Verse 8 says, love never ends. It never ends. But the day will come, and this could be referring to events that we're starting to cease in the first century, or it could be referring to events that take place just prior to our entrance into the heavenly kingdom of God. There's differences of opinion on that. But the point is, let's not get too sidetracked. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, the ability to speak languages that you never learned, they will cease. As for knowledge, probably in reference to divine revelation given to us by God, it will pass away. All of these things that are so like important to us, truth, revelation, proclamation, there's going to come a time when they end. All of them end except for love. Love never ends. Love is our eternal ministry. When we're in heaven, in in a perfect and renewed state, we're just going to be loving on one another in a way that we have never even come close to in the here and now. And we're going to be loving on God. And God's love will be so evident and present in our lives. Love will be our eternal ministry and it will be our eternal ethic. We will be eternally loved by God. We will eternally love on God. We will eternally be loved by one another. And we will eternally love one another. We will never, ever fail, thank God, at these things. In life, we so often define ministry by our accomplishments and we lose sight of the core to all of this. The core is Love. As you re-engage with the world this afternoon or this evening, you're at work, you're dialoguing on Zoom or whatever with your colleagues or you're interacting with your family or you're chatting with your neighbor over the fence, whatever it is, you're watching television, you know, you're binging on Netflix or whatever, you're going to be hearing, not so subtly, this message. Love is about you. It's a feeling. It's about what benefits you. It's about what advances you. It's about what provides for you. And these are lies. You need to push them away. God is calling us to this selfless, Christ-centered love in the here and now. More important than preaching. More important than divine revelation itself. More important than supernatural gifts. More important than all of these things is love. This is our eternal calling and it's our eternal ethic. And if that's true, why would we not start practicing those things now and taking love and making it our number one priority, our number one priority. If there's anything I want to be known for, I want to be known as a man or woman that loved people as Jesus Christ loved me. And therefore, even in my proclamation of the truth, I will adjust my approach so that I can never be accused of being rude or arrogant 
or unloving or resentful. But I want to demonstrate, yes, holy conviction and biblical clarity. But gentleness and kindness and peace and patience. I want to demonstrate the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, assess yourself in these areas. Chart a new course if you have failed. And pray this bold prayer to God. I believe he will answer it. Lord, provide opportunities for me even this week to test me, to resource me, and to approve me in the area of radical Christian love. This is the calling of Christ for his church. Let's lean into it and embrace it to the glory of God. Amen.